Jill Stark is a best-selling author, award-winning journalist and passionate mental health advocate. In this episode, Jill shares her own experience of what she refers to as her breakthrough, not breakdown. She's no stranger to anxiety and an over-reliance on alcohol throughout her life. And in this episode, she explains the liberating power of understanding her childhood and family dynamics in making sense of her own feelings of being defective and also the shifts that therapy and her eventual sobriety have created in her life. If you've ever thought of yourself as the good time party girl or party boy and then drunk so much that you blacked out, or if you've struggled with mental health issues regardless of having loving parents, or perhaps if you've ever considered happiness as the holy grail, then this story is for you. In fact, I reckon Jill's story has raw and real gems for each and every one of us. So I started by asking Jill, how did her younger years impact the woman she is today? Well, I think for a long time, I just couldn't quite understand how I had ended up the way I did, Um, particularly when I think about my older brother, who's three years older than me, and I often used to joke that we we had been swapped in the hospital (laughs) because I couldn't believe we were from the same family because he has never really struggled with any, he's had lots of physical health problems, but never had any mental health issues um, like I have. And I looked back at my childhood and thought, well, you know, I had a really loving family, very middle class and um, not rich, but certainly privileged um, in that way and felt like there was no overt trauma or anything and a lot of my friends had had quite difficult upbringing so I sort of almost felt guilty that I was struggling the way I had been since I was a teenager. You've talked about the fact though that your older brother was unwell when you were young. What was that like to be Yeah in so when I was sort of writing Happy Never After and actually when I was going through what, what my psychologist later rebranded a breakthrough not a breakdown (laughs) in 2014-2015 and I started to retrace my steps through the therapy I was doing with my psychologist but also just to to try and figure out where all this came from and so she suggested I speak to my parents about about that and um and yeah looking back I can see that it was a pretty chaotic time in my family. My Before I was born my father had had a, a nervous breakdown quite a serious breakdown where he was hospitalized and quite like almost catatonic like he was really unwell and he recovered but he was recovering while mum was pregnant with me so she was quite distracted with a, a quite sick husband and my older brother from the time I was born he was really sick um, he had meningitis he had kidney problems he had life-threatening physical health problems he was in and out of hospital and so there is me as a sort of three-year-old with my brother nearly you know at death's door in hospital And then again, once Neil recovered from that, within a year, my mum was very sick in hospital, uh, nearly died as well. Now, I don't have any conscious memories of being traumatised by that or or anything, but I do know um, through the work I've done in therapy, but also just the feelings that I've had since that early age of feeling like there's no one really here for me. Mm -hmm. So even though my parents were physically there and I knew that they loved me, they would tell me that they loved me, but that sort of real bonding experience of that real presence that is really important for that, that early age, there was, there was, I guess there was a deficit in that for me. And what I've learned about, you know, the way that the brain develops is that 90% of the brain is developed before the age of five. um, And in those first three years, it's really critical. That's when we sort of learn to understand our place in the world. And for me, 
I learned that I couldn't really rely on the adults in my life. And that's really threatening to a child's brain because when we're pre-verbal, we interpret the world through body language, through picking up these sort of unspoken cues around us. We as children, we can't look at our parents as being fallible and flawed because from a primal sense, we need them to be unbreakable because we need them to survive. It's an, it's an evolutionary instinct built into us. So when our parents are fallible, we don't have the cognitive skills to understand that it's because, oh, they've got a sick child and they're very distracted. We internalise it as there being something wrong with us. And so this feeling that I've had, and my psychologist said to me, that it's no coincidence that the very first word I used to describe myself in my first session with her was defective. Mm. And this feeling of being broken and unlovable and that there was something inherently wrong with me stretched all the way back to those early years when I couldn't actually articulate and understand that my parents loved me but they were distracted by other dramas in their life. And so I started to internalise this feeling of, well, if I wasn't so broken, I would be able to get this love and attention that I crave. And so this has been a pattern that's continued throughout my life, through friendships, through relationships, where I cling to people for this, the fear of being abandoned, and it's been proved quite problematic. And it's only through going through the process of therapy and kind of um, bringing these unconscious sort of motivations to the light that I've been able to, to get on top of them and to understand it. And at first, it was really scary and murky, and no one really wants to look at that stuff, or, um, the kind of messy parts of ourselves that we keep hidden. But it's so liberating to actually understand oh this is this pattern that I keep repeating and we all have these repeating patterns you're like where does it come from Mm. it all comes back to the place so every time I have an emotionally disproportionate reaction to the situation in front of me and this applies to everyone um it's never about what's happening in that moment it always has a history it always has this long tail that goes all the way back and I think when we start to understand that the reason that we're absolutely apoplectic on Twitter with some random person we've never met has really got nothing to do with whatever we're fighting about in that moment as much as we might think that we're very right and self-righteous. It actually has a history. And so understanding that, I think, really gives us a, a sense of understanding ourselves and being able to, to change those patterns and be a little bit kinder to ourselves. So at what point do you think we move from the why and needing to understand to the how and making changes? Oh, it's a really long process. And for me, you know, I came to, I've had different therapists throughout my life, but it was only through meeting Veronica, my current psychologist, that I really felt like until that point, it would just be sort of, we were kind of like slapping a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. And it was only through Veronica that we're really getting into the roots of that wound and understanding like where it all came from. Um, And so I think I was maybe... 38 when I started seeing her and now 43 so it's been five years of deep dive therapy and it's work that I will continue for the rest of my life and I think that's that's kind of the trap sometimes we think that we'll just go and get like a couple of sessions of CBT or maybe mm-hmm. take some meds and everything will be fine and and when we're not when we continue to have issues it's like what's wrong with me it's like well this is the human condition it's sort of you can't unpack it in a couple of days so yeah. it's not 12 yeah. sessions in a set of no. steak knives so, yeah. <laughs> you've talked a lot in your first book talked about how you used alcohol um to help you uh, through those years of, of struggle that was, and dark. that was a really helpful strategy wasn't it well um so 2013 you uh, you released that book and it was mm. very, very successful. Mm. Can you talk to us about, I suppose, the part that alcoholism and the addiction played for you in, in those difficult years? 
So I don't think I really understood the link between drinking and my mental health until probably in the last few years, really. Um, I, the, the year that I took off drinking um, in 2011, like that's eight years ago now, um, and the book came out, High Sobriety came out in 2013. And I think like I did understand that I would use alcohol like most of the journalists I know um, to cope with stress, but I didn't make the link between why I was drinking beyond that, I think, you know, to really sort of numb the pain, to not actually have to deal with that wound that I was talking about. And I think as well for me, and this is something that I've learned more recently, is that as I was talking about before about those feelings we have from childhood that that come up again and again so I can have that sense of feeling abandoned of feeling unlovable in situations as innocuous as I'm at the gym and my trainer is giving more attention to someone else than me and you know when I say I have these feelings I don't act on them anymore and I don't and I understand them I, I have this split second of oh that's that feeling and then I you know give myself and that little child some compassion and it kind of dissipates but there's often what comes with it is a sense of shame and that is what I've realised in recent years is alcohol was my gateway to shame and the thing about shame is it's a it's a feeling that um, we don't like but also it's familiar and the brain likes familiarity so for me getting really drunk and doing things that I might regret, having arguments, waking up the next day going who did I text, what have I done I know all of a sudden I have that sense of shame. And so in recent times I've realised that when I'm, when my life is going well, when I feel confident and capable and uh, um, a proper fully functioning adult, my child brain tries to drag me back to a place of dysfunction because it's familiar. And this new sense of adulthood and confidence and independence that I'm fostering feels like danger to my brain because it's so so unfamiliar so it's a real it's a real tug of war for me with alcohol it's not as simple as just I like a drink it's like for me I've got to really look at what's underneath that and I think for most of us in the culture that I grew up in in Scotland and also in Australia we live in a very alcohol soaked culture where we use um, booze for to commiserate to celebrate Everything is every aspect of our life. Why do you think in in Australia, particularly, we we are so focused on alcohol being implicit in our recreation, in our conversation? Oh, it's a big question. I mean, I've written a whole book about it, so it's sort of it's quite it's a multifaceted kind of yeah. I, I think we tell ourselves that we're the larrikin nation and this is part of our culture and you know oh we were founded on booze and the rum rebellion all that the rum rebellion if you actually look at that was a dispute over property rights but we've created we've created this myth that you know when i was not drinking the one of the things i heard repeatedly from people was it's un-australian mm. of you not to drink and what i wasn't prepared for i was prepared for it being challenging for me to talk, to stop drinking i was not prepared for other people being challenged by my sobriety and that is something again now that i'm sober again i find is really difficult is it's moved on a little bit in 8 years but it's still really entrenched where people they don't trust you. They feel defensive around you. And I think the thing about alcohol is is alcohol lowers inhibitions. And when you drink with someone, it's a contract that, that, that both of you are going to lower your inhibitions. You're going to be a bit vulnerable. And one of you is not drinking. I find a lot of friends find that really challenging. And, the, and for me, um, the 
people who find it most challenging or the people who have the most challenging relationship with alcohol themselves but don't want to look at it. Mm. And so being around me, and I was the party girl, I was the one that you could drink anyone on the table because I was from Scotland. And so when you look at someone else who drinks as much or more than you, you don't have to look your own problems in the eye because it's not a problem. It's just the social norm. So when I opted out of that, I kind of upended the table and it was really challenging for a lot of people. So, yeah, I think we do – we live in a culture where the Prime Minister downs a beer at the cricket and everyone thinks he's a hero. Like we have an alcohol industry that actively markets to young people the idea that drinking is equated with belonging – these are really insidious parts of our culture that, that don't happen by accident. So it's not an easy thing to, to swim against that tide. So you stopped drinking for the year and then wrote High Sobriety. Then you went back to drinking. Mm-hmm. And it's only been in the last five months that you've stopped drinking again. What happened in the in-between time? Um, so, yeah, I stopped drinking for nearly 14 months, 2011. Um, and then I began drinking again for probably a couple of years I was quite a mindful drinker I drank a lot less than I used to everything was kind of yeah a lot more kind of in balance and then just slowly things crept back in I mean alcohol is a drug it's addictive and also socially it's addictive and, and it just becomes part of the norm I think it's in the last few years I've started to go, well, this is really taking a toll. And also, you know, I'm in my 40s now. It's actually physiologically much more difficult to metabolise alcohol. You don't need as much to feel hungover the next day. I think my tolerance had got quite low because of the year off drinking. Yeah, well, it's five months that I've not had a drink, but it's probably been what we're in. Where are we now? Yeah, it's probably been almost most of the year that I haven't drunk. Like it was probably only a few months that I have actually been sober. And I think that that was quite telling that every time I'd go back to drinking, I'd find myself just like writing myself off and going, okay, I'm not really nailing moderation here. Like my dad, who's like the most annoying (laughs) Scotsman, who's always like, you're just everything in moderation, Jilly. I just don't understand why you just can't have a couple. And I'm like, "Mm, well, I can't. And I think... I think a lot of people struggle with with moderation. For me, abstinence is a lot easier than going out and having a couple, and particularly when the people around you like to get on it, and so it's hard to sort of put the handbrake on when you're when you're out. And also, like alcohol lowers your inhibitions and your 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 impulse control is sort of goes out the window, and so you just end up. It's harder to make rational decisions when you're three, four glasses wine deep than it would be just to not drink at all. Has it changed your friendship groups or who you choose to spend time with? I have to be careful what I do, who's going to listen to this. I have to be careful what I say. But I, um, I think I've noticed, I was speaking to a, a, one of my dear friends who who doesn't drink at all, um, and I was talking to him about this the other night. We were out at a gig and I said, I'm finding it really difficult, like my sort of close group of friends um, who are mostly journalists uh, who – we all go out in a group and it is largely a pub-based kind of um, bonding exercise and I'm finding it really difficult now that I'm not drinking because, God, people are boring after a few hours of drinking. And, uh, like, I can get to a certain point and, like I used to say, it's the witching hour, you know, past midnight, nothing good ever really happens. Like, um, you think you got all this FOMO, but really you're not actually missing out on that much. Um, and it's it's hard to sit there 
and be on the same level as people when they've just told you the same story four times because they can't remember that they've already told you it. And, and I said to my friend who doesn't drink, I said, well, how do you manage that? And he said, well, those group friendships that he used to have as well, he realized that a lot of them were drinking-based friendships rather than anything deeper. He said what he's done is that there's people within that group that he now catches up with individually and that that is where you get those connections. And I'm finding that as well. I'm finding that in the group I'm sort of making an effort to see people outside of the group because I think that has it's a bit more nourishing. And I think you have different friends for different purposes. And I have my closest friends individually uh, that our friendship is not based on on alcohol. And so I know that, that that is a deep and profound connection. So that's something that I've worked really hard to do is what I what, one of the biggest revelations to me when I first stopped drinking in 2011 was that, you know, we, we kind of use alcohol as a truth serum. We use it as an aphrodisiac. We use it as a kind of some sort of magic bullet that's going to allow us to be emotionally vulnerable in a way that we wouldn't, you know, it's like, I love you, I really love you, and all that sort of stuff that we do when we're drunk. And I I made a pact with myself that I was going to say all the things that I, well, maybe not all the things I would say drunk, but the things that I wanted to say to the people who mattered, and I would say them sober. I think there's this kind of misconception that, oh, but you need alcohol or drugs or whatever it might be to have this connection with people. It's like, yeah, well, you know what? When you take that away, that those moments of connection are so much more profound because they're not fueled by anything. They're completely pure. That's a really nice place to be. Where do you get your pleasure hits now? Oh, I do eat a lot of chocolate. But that is something I need to work on. Apparently that is a very common trap for people who stop drinking is um, to, to, to go to sugar. Um, so no, I'm definitely cutting back on that. Um, I... I spend a lot of time at the gym, which I really enjoy. I My joy comes from the moments of connection and and being being sort of really present in the moment. Like I was at this concert the other night with my friend, the other one who doesn't drink, and he and it was this woman, um, Leah Salonga, who I'd never heard of, but she like sings all the Disney songs. Like she's this um, musical theatre kind of... Uh, superstar and we went to this he's the entertainment reporter at the age so he gets all these free tickets and we went along and there's a moment where um she just did this medley of like songs like really because I'm a big cheesy pop song fan and, and she was sort of singing <laughs> One Direction and Mbop by Hanson which is a banger and I was just like I turned around to Michael and I was like this is so amazing and I thought you know this is this is the feeling that I wouldn't necessarily have and again I had it um recently when I was I, I ran my first mental health workshop which I'm sure we'll talk about in a, in a bit more detail later but I ran this workshop for the first time called warrior to warrior and it was really about sort of helping people to to find that strength within them and so 25 people who I'd never met turned up to hear me speak for three hours which in itself was a an enormous privilege um well for me I mean and anyway afterwards I just had this moment of sheer joy and sheer gratitude because I remember when I was really unwell I used to walk around the park just in tears like just drop it walking because walking was one of the things that was really um helpful for my mental health um and there was a song that I used to listen to called I'll Stand By You by Rachel Platten which is mm. a real pop song um and I was telling the people in my workshop about this you know this idea of integrating the inner child with the adult and I used to this little child in me was just like, I'm not going to survive this. I am not going to get through this. And then 
this song came on and I'm walking around Princess Park and I just started running and I imagined this little child on my back and I was holding her and we were running together. You know, I remember at the time thinking, what is all this pain for? Like, what, why do I have to deal with all of this pain? It's too much. I can't do it. And then when I had this workshop and I came home afterwards and I listened to the same song and I just thought that was what the pain was for, it was for this moment. Sorry. Um, and so I, I had this moment of joy and connection and real gratitude for what I was experiencing. And I thought if I had done what I wanted to do after that workshop, which was go to the pub with my friends, because that's how we celebrate some achievement. And I really wanted to go to the pub and have a drink. And I didn't. I went home and I spent time with myself. And I was like, if I'd gone to the pub, I would not have had that moment of connection. I would have drowned it in wine. And I would have had, you know, a short term feeling of pleasure but I wouldn't have felt this deep sense of gratitude and connection to the people who turned up connection to myself and I think that's what I get from not drinking is the connection to me more than anything else that I think a lot of us use alcohol to sort of not have to feel that the good and the bad so <laughs> well it's really <laughs> yeah, powerful it's, um the the idea of, of the good and the bad and, and, and our obsession with happiness, how do we feel happy, how do we feel okay? Your book, Happy Never After, in 2018 came out and then in 2019, When You're Not Okay, A Toolkit for Tough Times. You tap into this idea of, of happiness as why are we all questing after this happiness? What are your views on, on that? Yeah, I think that we live in a very commodified world and I, th I think the Eastern traditions have known this for centuries that happiness does not come from external props but we in the Western world are taking some time to catch up but yeah we, we live in a world where we think that if we just buy the Hilux or you know get the breathable yoga pants or um, you know <laughs> we get the, the dream partner or the, the perfect home the ideal job career success that's what's going to make us whole now I find out the hard way when I got all of those things that that is not what makes you happy or complete as a person so uh, my when my first book came out that was a dream come true it's all I'd ever wanted to do since I was a little girl growing up in Scotland was to publish a book and here here I here I was not only had I published a book but to my great surprise it was a bestseller and and you know I'm out there and everyone's sort of giving me all this praise and which, as you can imagine, for this little child who was so desperate for that, this was just like a drug that I couldn't get enough of. And there was never enough because underneath it all, I wasn't enough or that's what I felt anyway. So I, I learned that the hard way that when the book came out in sort of 2013 into 14, I was like, why am I, why do I feel so empty and why do I feel like it's not enough and what is wrong with me that I'm not happy? I should be like you know, completely jumping for joy and that's what everyone was telling me I should feel. And then there was a lot of guilt because, you know, I'm like sort of privileged white woman in a developed country complaining about her best-selling book is making her sad. <laughs> like it just felt, oh, first world problems. You know, having to, to realise that everything that you're told would make you happy is actually a mirage. Like I sort of often talk about my happy ever after was built on quicksand. It just felt like nothing, the ground beneath me was crumbling at a time where the society was telling me I uh, should have it all. Um, and so realising that that wasn't what makes me happy, I guess there's part of me that took the, the journalist in me was like, well, why? Why Why is it like this? And, and going through this epic kind of breakdown, which 
became a breakthrough allowed me to just re-examine everything and I think I do think that we live in a in a time particularly where everything is very externalized and everything is um it can be bought and or filtered or you know um and we tell our kids which my parents told me repeatedly as I was growing up and they meant it as a statement of unconditional love but they just used to say to me we just want you to be happy and there's me as this chronically anxious child thinking what is wrong with me again just feeding into that feeling of being defective and broken um so I think, of course, as a, if you're a parent, you, you, you don't want your kids to be unhappy, but when you teach them that happiness is the ultimate holy grail, then it doesn't allow them to understand that the human condition is to feel to experience sadness and grief and disappointment and frustration and anger, and that is all perfectly normal. So I think that's something that I'm quite passionate about, is really presenting a very authentic view of myself to the world, because... Um, we get into a lot of trouble when we put what I call um, social media's fairy tale filter over everything, where you know everything, everyone is hashtag blessed and living their best life. When natural fact, you know, like me, when I was very unwell in 2014, I posted a picture on Instagram of me sitting cross-legged on the beach, like staring wistfully out into the waves, um, and I hashtagged therapy. As if, you know, I was doing so well, but actually, in fact, I was literally having a nervous breakdown. But to the outside world, I looked like this sort of picture of tranquility. So I repost that picture from from time to time, normally on days like World Mental Health Day or things like that, just to say, this, this is not real and we need to start having much more honest conversations about what it means to be fully alive. Talking about not worrying about what other people think, you're so open and transparent with your own story. And some of that implicates or reflects on your family like it does for all of us Mm. did you have to check in or feel the need to check in with your family because you've written extensively you talk openly and some of that story is their story too so mum came out for the the launch of happy never after and actually in this uh interview with paul barclay for radio national in brisbane which was an in uh, avid reader the bookshop up there it was recorded for radio national um and paul barclay is one of the best interviewers in the business and he had interviewed me for the same program for high sobriety and he said during that interview he said you know like i hope you don't mind me asking but i can see that your mum is here in the audience um you know, you talk a lot about your early childhood experiences. Has that been difficult for you and your family? And I said, well, no, because I I spoke to mum and dad and said, I think it's really important that when we talk about these issues that we all have, no one is blaming anyone. There's no blame attached to that. My parents did the absolute best they could. There's no question that they loved me. That's that's not in question. But we're all flawed and we all have the... we. Not only do we have to deal with whatever life throws us throws at us in the moment, but we're all bringing with us the baggage that we inherited from our own parents. So, you know, my dad had a really difficult upbringing as an only child with a very strict and distant father. You know, um, my my mum's father is an alcoholic. Um, he's not my blood grandfather because people often think, "Oh, is that where the drinking came from?" It's but, genetic. Um, yeah, it's genetic. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so yeah, I think I. Was I, I had that conversation with, with my family before the book was published and said, like, and, I, and I think I, I wrote it in a way that was really respectful and tried to explain that this is, this is a reason, not, a, not a, a blame kind of situation. And could they hear it like that? 
I think so, yeah. I, I certainly haven't heard anything from them to suggest otherwise. I don't think – you know, I actually, I actually specifically said to mum quite directly, I am not blaming you. She's like, oh, no, I don't feel blamed. <laughs> so, so that's good. But I think what she has learned that she – she, what she now understands from reading that book is that when she would say some of the things that she said to me were very unhelpful as a child who was very anxious and even now as an adult who's very anxious that she she understands and doesn't do anymore. So things like mum used to say to me when I would be giving her this long list of things that I was worried about, everything from, oh, this pimple on my face could be cancer to, you know, what if nuclear war happens and the climate's cooked and all of this sort of stuff, which as it turns out, it was probably right to be worried about. Mm. But anyway, um, I would have all these worries and she would just say, oh, you know, it's very Scottish, oh, Jilly, just don't worry about it. Mm. It's the like, worst thing you can say. She said, don't worry about it. And then she'd say, you'd worry about the day that would never happen. Or when I would say I was really worried about what people at school, I was bullied quite a lot at high school and I used to think like, what will I do if I, if I wear this? What will people think? And she used to say, you know, it's very big headed to, to, be, to think that everyone is worried about what you're wearing. No one cares. And I was like, you, I, I'm not conceited. This is, this is not about me being a conceited child. This is about me being so painfully self-conscious and so terrified of not being accepted that I had these enormous worries and to be so so my <laughs> advice to parents is if your kids are really anxious telling them to just not worry about it um, or just I think there's again like talking about that 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 notion of of uh, we're very uncomfortable in our culture with the with with sitting with our own discomfort but sitting with other people's discomfort and acknowledging it so I think what what I had from my closest friends when I was quite unwell and what was incredible was their ability to empathise and to listen and to not try and fix or offer truisms and trite kind of token... Solutions. Uh, yes, yeah, solution. Like, oh, just don't worry about it. So mum has, has learned that and she saw it in practice when she came out um, for my 40th and she... I was at a, we were at a friend's birthday party a couple of weeks before my 40th and I was getting really anxious about, oh, this, this particular friend had these balloons in the shape of her name and maybe I should get balloons and I have not got balloons for my party. Maybe I should get, what, why, what, should I get balloons? You need Jill balloons. Yeah, and she, she was there and my best friend Jason was there and mum was just getting annoyed with me saying, that's just a ridiculous thing to worry about. Like, what, you know, just don't worry about it. And I just got so upset with her. And then Jason, Jason's response was, oh, well, let's think this through. Do you actually think those balloons look good? I was like, no, they look really tacky. And he's like, do you want balloons that are tacky at your birthday? And I was like, I don't think I do. He's like, yeah, but maybe you don't need to worry so much about that. Like, But he took a coaching role instead of telling you the answer. He talked it through with me and he yeah. acknowledged that what I was feeling was not pleasant. And that that is the, uh, the, the single most important thing you can do for someone who is doing it tough is to acknowledge that what they're feeling is crap. And like, I'm sorry you're going through this. That must be really tough. Mm-hmm. And yours is a story of um, hope and resilience and all the words that we hear, journey, all the hashtags that are out there. How do you know that you're not going back where you've been? And I know you would want this, Jill, for your message not to be one of, I've worked it out, I've arrived. Oh, absolutely not. I I think there's too much of that out there. Like mm. here, here's this miracle cure, or you know, the the, the 
one of the reasons I wrote Happy Never After is because it was the book that I needed. I wanted a book when I was really unwell and I was looking in the self-help section and there was just all of these books. Well, there's either books saying, you know, how to cure your anxiety and do these five things and you'll be fine. Or there was the sort of positive thinking books um, about just like look in the mirror every morning and tell yourself that I shine with happiness. It's like, <laughs> no, yeah. it's just the kind of advice I want to throw into a fire. Like I just, it's, it's really unhelpful. And I think the, the prevailing mental health narrative for a number of years has been, which is good. It's good that we're now, people now know that they can get help, but, but this idea that you can be mentally unwell, you get help and then you're fixed. Yeah. Well, you can think yourself or talk you yourself can, yeah, out talk of it. yourself well, but the idea that, that our mental health or our mental health issues are this sort of finite period that you can – like something that you can catch like a cold and then just take a couple of drugs and it'll be gone I think is really unhelpful. I mean, sure, that might be the experience for some people, but for a lot of us, it's a lifelong journey. And so for me, when you ask, like, how do I know I'm not going to go back there, I don't. Mm. And, and I've had moments. I've had in recent months where I've like, I am really doing it tough here and – this sucks. And I think the difference now is I know I'll be okay, even in those really dark moments, because I've cultivated inside me this warrior, this warrior child who has been beaten and bloodied and face down on the canvas, but who knows how to get back up now. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the biggest thing I've learned about my own resilience is that I as I've said, I'm incredibly indebted to my family and particularly my friends who were with me through those darkest days for helping me get through it. But ultimately, when times are really tough, it's me I have to rely on. And I think that was a really terrifying realisation at first, that no one's coming to rescue me. The only way I'm going to get... Because what I thought was going to rescue me was success or the validation from the crowd and acceptance and belonging and all of these things that that first book was meant to give me. And then none of that really made any difference because it was never enough because it was like I was pouring water into a leaky bucket. So now I have to be my own cheerleader. I have to be my own best friend and all of those cliched things, but it's so true. Like I have to find the strength within me to get back up. So I know that if I'm back down there again, it'll be hard, but I'll be all right. Mm. It sounds like you've got a lot to draw from in your deep well of experience yeah. and insight. And ultimately, I think I love what you say about happiness and that being human's messy. It's very it's, it's messy. It's not meant to be always light and, and bubbles and joy. There's got to be a darkness, um, you know, as part of our human experience. We always like to end our, our chats with uh, thinking about humans, you know. Who's doing human really well? <laughs> Wowzers. Well, obviously, one of my big heroes is Brene Brown. I think she's a legend. Um, she talks, obviously, a lot about vulnerability and shame. My biggest teacher, I think, is a American Buddhist nun called Pema Chodron. Yeah, who amazing. A friend handed me a book that I wasn't ready to read called When Things Fall Apart. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm fine. And it wasn't fine. But um, that has been a, all of her teachings have really taught me exactly what you say about the power that comes from learning from the most 
horrendous experiences of your life. And when you think about it, most people who've gone through some sort of experience, whether it's a divorce or a job loss or some sort of crisis in life where they look back on and go, actually, that was the best thing that ever happened. Mm. It taught me so much. Um, and people often say to me, this anxiety that you have it sounds like a real burden. And I say, well, it is in some ways, but it's an absolute gift in many ways. It's, it's a beautiful thing because I feel like I've got more empathy than I ever have. I feel like I've got a connection to myself and to other people that I wouldn't have had otherwise. I've got a resilience that was born out of the flames of, the, of my life being on fire. Um, and so I think, to go back to your earlier point about what happens if I go back there, I was like, well, I realise now that this idea that we, we're always moving forward or else we're failing it's is really problematic. Like life is not like that. It's a whole lot of steps forward, steps back, steps sideways, a lot of standing still, but that is what progress looks like. And so for me, I don't measure myself against where I was last week. I measure myself against where I was five years ago, 10 years ago. And I think when I do that, I come up pretty well. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us. So what we really hope is that these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe a few others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. <laughs>